0: and pull up a deck chair, this is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, how are you all? Okay, so this week... We have a Black Widow case from Australia, one in which the failure to kill her de facto partner uncovers the murder of her previous one. Now, this case was brought to my attention by Sophie, who's one of our listeners, whose uncle John Asquith was the victim of the Black Widow, so I was able to get clarification on what really went on. Okay, so references tonight are from The Age, the Sydney Morning Herald, ABC Daily Mail, Women's Weekly, Court Records, and from John Asquith himself. Okay, let's get stuck into it. We go back to Monday the 12th of April, 1993. It's Easter Monday to be exact, where 47-year-old Patricia Byers and 52-year-old John Victor Asquith are relaxing on her 24-foot luxury cabin cruiser, the Misty Blue, out on Moreton Bay, Queensland. Now, John and Patricia worked together at their shop, TJ Seafood and Takeaway, in Logam Home. Now, that's about a 30-minute drive southeast of Brisbane. They'd met when they both worked for AMP, selling insurance. Now, John didn't really want to go on the boat. He was a bit of a landlubber, but Patricia insisted. She said that they needed a break from the shop, and so John went along. Now, things started off well on the trip, but Patricia said there were engine problems they anchored in shallow waters off Peel Island. Patricia checked the engine while John started the barbie. Now, John cooked steak and potatoes. They smoked cigars and they drank red wine. And then they made love. Now, John drifted off to sleep and he next recalled walking with a tingling feeling in his arms, legs and back with blood coming from a wound to his forehead. Although seriously injured, he was able to move about. He couldn't find Patricia for some time. But as he moved from the rear to the front of the boat, he saw a rifle. Now, this looked suspiciously like a sawn-off version of the .22 rifle, which Patricia kept in the main bedroom of her house. Now, he eventually found Patricia lying across the bow of the boat. Initially, she didn't respond. He got a blanket for her. Now, John asked her what was wrong, and Patricia said she'd been hit over the neck. Now, John called in an SOS on the radio, and speaking to the ghost car, the ghost guard—that's too Halloweenish. The coast guard on the radio. John then told them how pirates had boarded the boat in the early hours and had attacked them. Pirates in Morton Bay. Well, as the coast guard looked for the cruiser, they were already suspicious of his story. Now, whilst waiting for help, he asked her what the gun was doing in the boat, and she said that she didn't know anything about it. The Coast Guard officers, they saw that John was bleeding from the head, but Patricia had no visible signs of injury. Now, one thing to note was that when John called the Coast Guard over the radio, he mentioned the sawn-off rifle, but when they boarded, no rifle was to be found. Now, Patricia later told police that they'd been asleep, that she was awakened by a noise, went upstairs, she felt a pain in her head and became unconscious. When she came to, John was putting a blanket around her and she noticed blood all over him. He radioed for help and eventually they were brought to the mainland. Now she gave similar accounts to an ambulance officer, a nurse and a relative, tending to suggest that some third person or persons had come aboard and attacked them. She also said that she didn't know she, that John had been shot until his examination at the hospital revealed that fact. Now, John skull suffered a compa- compound depressed fracture. I think I need a few beers. These words aren't coming out. Multiple fragments of bone and bullet were lodged within his brain to a depth of six to seven centimeters. Now, they got most of the fragments out, but still some are in there. Forensic evidence confirmed a blood-soaked bunk on the cruiser was consistent with him having been shot in that location. As well, fragments of a bullet or bullets were found within the cabin. So John's in hospital. He'll be there for about two and a half weeks. John, from the get-go, was suspicious of Patricia already, but he loved Patricia and was in a little bit of denial about it all. He just didn't want to believe she was capable of trying to murder him. Now, while he's recovering in hospital, police are gathering evidence on Patricia because they are more than just suspicious. They find that there's several life insurance policies taken out in John's name. These amounted to more than $270,000. Now, four of the policies were taken out in the months preceding the shooting and all had incorrect phone numbers and were addressed to a post box Patricia had opened, rather than the house that they lived in at 25 Glen Osmond Road, Yatala. Now, further examination would reveal that these signatures had been faked. When John is presented with this evidence, he tells them he knows nothing about the policies, and still he didn't really want to believe Patricia would want to kill him. Now, police would recover this sawn-off rifle in a nearby river. When they do a search of the Yatala home, on a vice in the garage, they find wood shavings that match the sawn-off rifle. Now, on the day of the shooting, with John in hospital, Patricia goes out and buys a replacement rifle and takes it home. Now, police take this rifle to show John and he tells them that's different to the one that they'd had in his home previously. Now, this is enough for police to arrest Patricia on attempted murder and a bunch of fraud and forgery charges. She is granted bail, and her solicitor organises a safe house for her to stay in during this time. Okay, so once John starts to recover, after you know two and a half weeks in hospital, he's then got a further three weeks of rehab. He goes straight to his mum's house down the coast for a few weeks and then he stays with friends up the coast so that he could get back to work. Now, at this stage, John is pretty sure Patricia did try to kill him. But again, he's in denial. The couple actually go back to work together at the takeaway shop. But there's a few strange things that are about to happen. Patricia is pressuring John to retract the statement that he gave to police. Now, this was in regards to him seeing the gun on the boat after he was shot, when he woke up. He refuses to do this, and then one day he finds nails in three of his tyres. He ended up driving home, and they went flat. Patricia, later on, makes him a coffee, which tastes absolutely awful, and so he chips it out. Again later, he's starting to feel a bit strange after eating food made by Patricia. Now, a doctor's visit and analysis of his blood shows that he's got so much Valium in him that they're amazed he's still walking around, even though it was the day after he ate the tainted food. Now, after the poisoning attempt, they closed the shop. I guess John didn't want to be too close to Patricia anymore. So, Patricia's first told police... The pirates had boarded the ship, knocked her out, ransacked the boat and shot John. But now she changed her story. She now reckoned that John had tried to accidentally shoot himself while trying to stage his disappearance to claim on the multiple life insurance policies that he had taken out. And this would just solve all his financial problems. Okay, so at trial, there is... John's versions of events that I've already discussed. They went out on the boat, got engine trouble, John made dinner, they had wine and sex, then he went to sleep and woke up with blood everywhere and Patricia is on deck, seemingly knocked out with a sawn-off rifle next to her. But according to Patricia, they had an argument at the stern of the boat, John stormed off into the cabin and a few seconds later she heard a gunshot. Upon her investigating, she hears John say, the fucking thing went off and explained that he had placed the gun on top of an overnight bag on the galley bench and that as he went to lie down the gun must have fallen and discharged. She also maintained that they at the time were to stage John's disappearance to collect on several insurance policies in his name. Okay, So we've already mentioned the life insurance policies and how the addresses on those policies had been changed to a post office box that Patricia had set up. Also, the incorrect phone numbers had been supplied on these insurance proposals. Now, John had no idea about any of this. Now, Patricia corresponded through that address with the insurance agencies Now, when one of the companies required additional evidence in relation to John's blood pressure, Patricia visited a doctor using the name Joan Asquith. She got examined and subsequently she altered the medical certificate from Joan to John Asquith before submitting it to the company. The last two policies were registered on the 12th of March and the 5th of April, 1993. Now, that last one, It was just eight days prior to the shooting. Now, John, as I said, denied any knowledge of any of these policies prior to the shooting, which I guess would be expected as all of the signatures on the policies had been forged by who? Patricia. Now, Patricia admitted in court that her rifle was the one that caused the injury and that its barrel and stock had been sawn off prior to taking it on board. It, and ammunition for it, had been thrown overboard after the shooting, but Patricia said that John had done this. Now, on the same day as she returned to the mainland with John, after he'd been shot and taken to hospital, but Patricia, as I said, purchased a replacement rifle and took it home. Now, this, she says, was done in order to answer any queries from people who knew that she kept a gun at the house. Pretty sus, everything she's doing, and nothing's starting that up. Now, some of you might be thinking, how did John survive after being shot in the head? Well, Patricia had loaded the wrong ammo in the rifle, and that shattered as soon as she pulled the trigger. Now, this is the thing that saved John's life. So, the jury didn't believe Patricia's story, and in 1994, she would be found guilty of attempted murder and sentenced to 12 years. Justice? Maybe. But that's not all. With the trial and Patricia's conviction in the news, the family of her former partner, Carell, or Carl as he was known, Gotjins, contact police. Because they haven't seen or heard of him since he mysteriously disappeared four years previously. In 1990, he was age 51 at the time. Now, police started to investigate. And what they uncovered was that Carl Gottens hadn't been seen since July of 1990. Patricia and Carl had been together in a de facto relationship for eight years. They lived at the 25 Glen Osmond Road, Yatala premises, owned by Carl. Now, things were a bit strained in the relationship, and they had clearly separated by mid 1990. Carl had met a Thai bar girl working in Singapore named Her nickname being Oi, which is so much easier to pronounce. I actually had to get Kate to say her real name. In May 1990, Carl had made a booking to travel to Bangkok by Thai Airways on the 3rd of July 1990 and returned to Brisbane from Bangkok on the 16th of August. Carl reckons he was going there to marry Oi. And on the twenty-fifth of June nineteen ninety, Carl changed his departure date from the third of July to the sixth of July. And on the twenty-ninth of June, he again contacted his travel agent and changed his return date, but left his departure date at the 6th of July. Now Carl's Amex was debited to the sum of $1,385 for the airfare and $187 for travel insurance. So, to me, he was flying business class. As that sort of cash in 1990 It's worth about three grand today. Well, Carl did have a pretty good job. He was a ship's engineer, or a ship engineer. When Carl spoke to his travel agent on the 29th of June, he said he was in New South Wales and would be up in a few days to collect the tickets. Carl never showed to collect his tickets. Interestingly, Patricia called the travel agent and cancelled the tickets telling the agent that Carl was sick and couldn't go. Now, Patricia was told that a refund would take a couple of weeks. Also, Oi was called by a woman with an Australian accent. Apparently, Oi was called while she was waiting for him at the airport. Anyway, she was told that Carl had been in an accident or had an accident and wasn't coming to Thailand to meet her. That's a bit of a bitchy move, calling her on the day that he was supposed to arrive, so she had to go to the airport. For nothing, But although Patricia was telling the travel agent and Carl's new romantic interest, Oi, that he was sick and couldn't travel, she was telling others that he'd left her and gone to Asia to marry some girl that he'd met. She told this story to a Jay Cole, an AMP insurance agent that Carl and Patricia were friends with. She told him this is his 50th birthday party. Now, this was held on the 28th of July, 1990. She attended this party with guess who? John Asquith. Yep, the same John Asquith that she ended up shooting in the head. Patricia told John at the party that Carl wouldn't marry her and that he'd gone to the Philippines or Singapore and had married another woman. Now John was also told that Carl had only left with a suitcase of clothes and he'd also taken the double bed. She told Carl's sister, uh, Mrs. Decker, in 1990 that Carl had gone to Asia and was going to ma- marry an Asian girl. Now, Carl had been married before and had two daughters. Philippa Grayburn was married to Carl and they divorced in June of 83. They did keep in contact, usually over the phone, but she hadn't heard from him since September 89. Carl's sister and uh, Mrs. Decker also hadn't heard from him since 1989. Ella Salon, one of his daughters, that kept in touch with him every few months, she got a Christmas card from him in 89 but hadn't heard from him since and called the Yatala property at the end of 1990 but was told by Patricia that her father was living on a boat somewhere in Southeast Asia and was very hard to contact. Now as police started to try and zone in on the date that Carl was last seen or heard of, They found that on the 3rd of July, this is 1990, his co-worker, Mr Roberts, drove Carl from Yamba in New South Wales to Brisbane, taking him home to his house at Yatala. Now, Carl worked at the Lord Howe Shipping Company in Yamba. Now, it's about a three hours drive home. Roberts was a marine superintendent employed by the shipping company, which also employed Carl. According to Roberts, Carl had been overpaid about $1,000 and it was agreed between the two of them that the amount would be deducted from his next pay. Now, Carl had vacation leave, of course, to go and fly to Thailand and he was expected to return to work when he got back. Now, Roberts never saw him again after dropping him off at the Yatala house. He would get a letter, though. It was a letter of resignation by Carl and a request to send all my gear and any mail on to Trish. Trish is Patricia. Now, also in the letter, it was just lavish in praise of this Patricia. The letter went on. I was also lucky Trish paid me all the money up front in cash. She's been terrific. and Maybe I've made a bad decision. I feel bad, but she's smart and good looking. I can't see her being left on the shelf. Now, accompanying the letter, <laughs> we'll get into that more. Accompanying the letter was a $30 check, also it's alleged to be forged for sending Carl's gear and any mail back to him. Now, Roberts would end up going to visit this Yatala residence a week or so later. And he sees tradesmen pouring a concrete slab to build a pergola on it. Concrete slabs and de facto husbands nowhere to be seen. I find that very interesting. Anyway, the last time police can find anyone that's seen Carl alive was when Roberts took him home on the 3rd of July. Now, July is pretty important in this case. A letter signed by Carl and dated the 3rd of July is sent to the manager of the Sunnybank Hills branch of the National Australia Bank. The letter stated that Carl had decided not to borrow the money in regards to his discussion about a loan. And it said that he was going to sell the house instead. The letter asked that the certificate of title be sent to the above address under registered mail ASAP. On the 5th of July, Patricia orders a new bed to be delivered and this is delivered on the 6th. On this date, There's an entry in Patricia's diary that reads, Carl left and dropped him in the city. On the 18th of July, documents were produced to complete the transfer of the Yatala property into Patricia's name. They were a transfer of the title and a notification of change of ownership to the Valuer General. On the 20th of July, the transfer of the Yatala property was lodged for registration and that was registered on the 25th of July. Now, when checking with Carl's bank, the investigators found that on the 29th of June, his account with the National Australia Bank at Sunnybank Hills was $1,598.31 in credit. But by the following January, it was reduced to zero. Carl's three bank cards were used to run up bills by drawing cash and paying for goods and work, which were never paid back. Carl's Mastercard, for example, was used to buy a die-cast model car which was delivered to Yatala and later found by police at another residence, that being of Patricia's son, Alan. In November 1990, a carpet firm was telephoned by a woman identifying herself as Mrs. Gottons, who asked for a quote on carpet for the Yatala house. A lounge room and three bedrooms were to be covered and the carpet was paid for with Carl's Amex card. The voucher they couldn't find, but the proprietor of the carpet firm gave evidence that the voucher was signed by the woman who'd ordered the carpet at the showroom. Now, that evidence was supported by the proprietor's wife. Another transaction, also relating to an improvement to the Atala house, was sworn to by the proprietor of a pergola centre. Now, he says... He received a phone call from a Mrs. Gotten's in November 1990. He arranged for the woman to come to his house and the woman showed him a business card with Trish on it. He said that Trish signed C.T. Gotten's on the relevant contract and other documents including the Amex voucher. Again, Carl's Amex card was used. Now, (laughs) I was working retail back then when this was all going on. And I treated every credit card as potentially stolen. Now, that way, you check all the details, including the signature, right? But I tell you how many times I would see a colleague process a credit card and not even ask to see the signature on the card. Now, sometimes salespeople, they just want the sale. They don't want to lose it by checking its authenticity, all right? Anyway, there's more activity on Carl's bank accounts. There is a deposit of $2,774.97 on the 7th of August. Now, this consists of $2,200 in US dollar traveler's checks. These were deposited by Patricia, right? Now, when she's asked, where'd you get these traveler's checks from? She answered, oh, Carl must have given it to me. Because it sounds like the money he was going to use to go on his holiday to go and meet Oi. Now, at this stage... Police did a bit more of a forensic search of the premises. They find spots in the bedroom which indicate blood. And further DNA testing showed a reasonable match of Carl's blood. The fact that she ordered a new bed on the 5th of July, well, (laughs) that's pretty sus. Telling people he's leaving, right? And he only took a suitcase, but he also took the double bed. I mean, he's travelling light, but he takes a double bed with him. I mean, that just makes no sense at all. Now, the investigators bring in a handwriting expert, right, to go over the documents used to transfer the house into Patricia's name. Now, they are forgeries. Also, it found that she requested Carl's will be sent to her. She requested that using forged documents, right, as if Carl's asking for it. Patricia's not only forging documents to absorb all of Carl's wealth, But she's draining his bank accounts and running up debts on his credit cards. Now, Carl was meticulous with his finances. He wouldn't have let himself get into so much financial shit. At least he'd pay his credit card on time. Now, no one had heard or seen Carl since early July 1990. There were no records of him leaving the country or returning after July. Now, everything pointed to Patricia as being involved in his disappearance. She would be charged with Carl's murder and go to trial in 1999. Now, these circumstantial cases tend to take a lot of time before they go to trial. Now, like I said, it's totally circumstantial, this case, and at this stage, Carl's body isn't found. Patricia denied that she had anything to do with this disappearance. The same Patricia that at the time is doing time for shooting her de facto John Asquith. Well, the jury would find that Patricia Byers was guilty of murder and sentenced her to life. In 2006, Carl's daughters won a court case against Patricia in order to get back all the assets that she'd fraudulently acquired. Then in 2009, she applied to be moved from her prison in Queensland to one closer to her son in South Australia. Now, Queensland was bringing in this no body, no parole law at the time, which would have meant she wouldn't qualify for any early release. So that was the real reason she wanted to go to South Australia. Now, she was moved to South Australia, but guess what? Then they brought in the same laws, no body, no parole. So this forced a hand in finally having to admit that she did indeed kill Carl after she hit him in the head with a machete during an argument and he'd fallen into a river. Now, I'm being a little bit vague here, I know, because I have two different stories. One, she hit him with a machete and he fell in the Logan River, and the other one, he fell in the Kumara River. And it doesn't really matter, I don't think, because no one believes that's what happened. Investigators did search the area but found no evidence that her story was true, and given the, the blood stains in the bedroom of the Yatala residence and the mattress being replaced at the time Carl went missing, I don't think she hit him near any river at all. We all know it happened in the bedroom, but John Asquith and others—they reckon Carl's body's not floating in any river. They reckon it's buried under the concrete at the Yatala residence at the Pagola but as far as I know and can find out, it's not been searched this date, okay? So I asked Sophie what her uncle John thinks of Patricia nowadays, and she says you couldn't print it in words nowadays the things he thinks of her. He doesn't care what she does. He just doesn't want to know her anymore. Sophie also told me that John got a message today actually saying she had applied for parole again the second time in 12 months, and she was rejected which is a big yay. So, Islanders, what a crazy case. Patricia Byers nearly gets away with murder and is only busted because of the publicity surrounding the attempted murder of her next partner. Now, she was just a greedy, manipulating, murderous and selfish bitch. She's with Carl for eight years and as soon as it looks like he's going to leave and marry some Thai girl, she kills him in the bedroom, probably shot him in the head, just like she shot John Asquith, while he slept. Now, she then forges multiple documents to get all his stuff and drains his bank accounts and racks up debts on his credit card. She even spends his traveller's checks he had for the holiday that he never got to go on. Then straight away she's onto an exbo, John. And within a few years she tries to kill him as well after getting a stack of life insurance policies without his knowledge. I mean, Jesus Christ, what goes on in some people's heads what made me laugh, though, was that forged letter Patricia wrote to Carl's boss supposedly being from Carl for his resignation letter. Where, <laughs> the bit where it says, She's been terrific and maybe I've made a bad decision. I feel bad, but she is smart and good looking. I can't see her being left on the shelf. Oh my God! Jesus, she doesn't half think she's pretty special, eh? Well, Patricia, you didn't end up on the shelf. You ended up in a prison cell, bitch face. Okay, so there you go. Thanks to Sophie and her Uncle John for the input into this disturbing case. Now, next episode will be a a collaboration for Halloween put together by the host of Hometown History and It's Foul Play podcast, Shane Waters. It's split up into two parts because it's pretty long because it features... 31 true crime pr- podcast. Now I'm going to release part 1 on the 31st and the next, the next day I'll have more information on my Facebook closer to the date which will list all the different uh, people collaborating and I'm sure you know quite a few of them Okay, I'd like to thank my Patreons past and present for keeping the lights on. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, that's all I want, a dollar please check out patreon.com forward slash true crime island just like Sharon Jones did last week. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash true crime island. A free beer is always nice after dumpster diving into these cases. Just like. Okay, I'm going <laughs> to. Rachel, Charles, and David. They all did it recently. Thank you so much. Boomfagalanga. But can I just ask that you take the time to share the podcast with your friends or even in groups on Facebook, wherever you want? Island, The island is one of the only fruit. If you truly independent True Crime podcast, I shouldn't try and say it so fast. That's commercial free. Best of all, it's free of charge to help the island out. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com. You get all the links to everywhere or whatever you want to do. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom,